Good morning to all of you. It's a lovely morning to be here together. Um, this morning, I just decided to just go for it. I was like, it's July. It's Corona time. We're outside. I'm wearing shorts. I'm doing it. I'm just going to go for it. Many years ago at, at Eyesight, what our church was formerly named, we, we only wore shorts when we preached. And then somebody complained. And, um, and then the pastor, Josh, he told me and the other guy who also preached that we had to wear pants from now on. And I was probably 24 or something. I was very angry. I threw a hissy fit. And, and I was like, you know what? One day there's going to be a global pandemic. And I'm going to bring it back. So here we are. Uh, this morning we are in John chapter 2. We're uh, during this time of missional communities. We're, uh, I'm preaching through a series called, I'm just calling Jesus With. It's this it's multiple stories of Jesus' interactions with other people. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. I'm going to read this and then, then I'll pray. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And I filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I'll stop there and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is living and active, that this is the word of the Lord. We pray that our hearts would be shaped, changed, penetrated by the word of God. That you cut us free from the bonds of slavery to sin. We ask that our hearts would be soft and tender before you. You would transform us even as you transform this water. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The Gospel of John is organized around these specific signs, these miracles that Jesus performs. Jesus, the Gospel of John's writer will say, John will say, Jesus does way more than these miracles. But he chooses this specific number and these specific miracles for a reason because he is through these signs, showing you something 
that you only see them together and in their whole. And this is the very first of the seven. Immediately before this story, in the end of John chapter 1, Jesus is uh, calling a disciple, Nathaniel. Nathaniel is skeptical that his friend has rightly seen this teacher of Israel. And he says, uh, how can this guy be coming from Nazareth? Nobody comes from Nazareth. It's a little hick town up north. Nobody comes from there. And Jesus miraculously recounts portions of this conversation to Nathanael, even though he wasn't anywhere close to him. And Nathanael is immediately, he believes. He says, how else could you explain that Jesus knew? And Jesus says at the end of John chapter 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He promises him, you will see greater things than this. That's how this story is introduced. You will see greater things than this. You will see the glory of God opened up. And so as we're reading the Gospel of John, that's quite the buildup. It's quite the introduction And if we're not paying attention, it feels kind of like a letdown. There are more miracles in the Gospel of John itself. There are more miracles from Jesus' life that would seem more extraordinary, more significant, more impactful. I mean, one of John's seven signs is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you're going to introduce it to Nathaniel saying, you will see greater things than this. You will see the glory of God. You'll see angels descending and ascending from the Son of Man. You know, maybe start with Lazarus. That's what it feels like. But here instead is the story of Jesus at a party. Jesus with these wedding goers. And it's tempting to not see what John wants us to see. It's tempting to not see what Jesus' disciples saw. Because at the end of this story, you see that the disciples themselves believe that they have seen something significant. So before the story starts, you're prepped by the gospel writer. The disciples will see the glory of God. And at the end of the story, the disciples are saying, we have seen the glory of God. So what happened at this particular miracle that was so significant that needed to be introduced this way and ended this way? What convinced the disciples that they had seen the glory of God? This is a neighborhood wedding in an insignificant nothing of a town. This Nazareth is an insignificant nothing of a town. It's teeny tiny. Cana is even smaller. It's in walking distance to Nazareth. It's a tiny, tiny town. The people who are getting married are not even named. It is not the people who are significant. But it is significant, the nature of this town and these people. This is an ordinary town and an ordinary wedding. In this culture and this time, weddings are a huge deal. I mean, they're a huge deal for us too. I felt like my wedding was a big deal. But it was one afternoon and evening. The party was in the afternoon. I mean, the the wedding first. The wedding was in the afternoon, and then the party was that night, and that's it. Everybody went home. For the average Near Eastern wedding, 
They're talking about a week's festivities. You party all the way for a week. And the people at, in the town, everybody who's invited, expect there to be a, a more than enough, a surplus for the party all week. And, you know, we live in a relatively small town. It's much larger than Cana. But we know how word travels in our small town, right? You can find out people's business pretty easily. You probably, if you don't know what's going on with someone, you know the person who does know that's going on with someone. And can you imagine in this small town, this event of a wedding, and the people have let the wine run out. For the rest of those people's lives, they will be known as the people who ran out of wine. Forever, the community, the neighborhood will know. These are the people who either were not smart enough to do the math correctly or who were too poor to provide. These are the people who could not keep the party going and they have ruined a public event. That's going to be hung on their necks forever. So when Mary hears that they've run out of wine, she knows her son. She knows who her son is. When people sing that song, Mary, did you know? At Christmas time, the answer is yes, Mary did know. Mary knew. Mary knew who her son was. And she tells the servants, go talk to my son. And Jesus' reply is kind of, seems rude. Woman, what are you doing? This is not my time. Now, it comes across a little more rude than it was at the time. It, our English doesn't convey that very well, but still kind of standoffish. But Mary knows her son. And Mary, like any good mother, says, I know my boy's got this. Just do whatever he tells you. He's going to take care of this. And this is often how Jesus interacts with people in the Gospels. People will come to him and ask for something, and very often Jesus will say, no, for this reason or that reason. And then they will say, but please, and then he will say, okay. Because he wants people to come and be persistent with him. And this is exactly what happens with his mother. And then it's important to pay attention to the details that John gives you. When the gospel writers give you details like this, they're not meaningless. He says that nearby, there are six stone jars. We're not talking about mason jars. We're talking about jars about this tall, 20 to 30 gallons. They are purification jars. They are for the people to dip their hands in and ritually purify themselves before the meal. And they are empty. There's six of them. John is going to play with numbers the entirety of his gospel. And six is the number of people. It's the number of man. Because man was made on the sixth day in the creation story. So this, there's six of these jars meant for purification. Filled with, Jesus tells them to be filled with water. And then, in a word, he changes it. And the water, ordinary water, is converted into wine. And the the person who's running the feast is amazed at what he's experiencing. Because the strategy was give the stronger wine at the beginning of the party so that people get drunk, basically, 
And then they wouldn't notice that the wine decreases in quality. But he tastes the wine, he tastes the new wine, and he says, this wine is better than the stuff that we served at the very beginning. He's amazed at the generosity of the hosts. But it is not their generosity that we are supposed to see. It is instead the generosity of Jesus. And that makes the disciples believe that they have seen the glory of God. It is a central element of God's character, of Jesus' character, that we see that He is overwhelmingly generous. John Calvin, in some place, a commentary or his institutes, he says one of the real most pressing dangers for you and I spiritually is that we would come to imagine that God is like us. We would come to imagine not just that God might be as uh, small as me or powerless as me, but he's specifically talking. We are in danger of believing that Jesus would be as cheap and as stingy as we are. But the glory of God is revealed in Jesus when he reveals the overflowing nature of his generosity for these people, these fools who have miscalculated the extent of their obligation, these people who are too poor to fill the jars with wine like they're supposed to. I know that when I, when I read this story, when I read stories like it, I am confronted by the reality that I, if I was in Jesus' shoes, my response would be to be far more cheap and stingy and critical than Jesus ever is. My reaction in moments like these in my own life is to breathe a deep sigh through my nostrils, to look at the person, usually my wife or my children, who've offended me, and to say, not, yes, I will do it, but how did you get this wrong? Why have you failed? Yes, I will take care of the thing that you failed to do, but why have you failed me? And the great besetting sin of my life is to think that God somehow tips in between acceptance and unacceptance, generosity and justice, holiness and mercy, that if I might catch him at the wrong time, if I might catch him too tired late in the day, as I am too tired late in the day, the best thing that I could hope from him is that he might just choke back his annoyance with me and he might give me just what I need. But that is not what God is like. That is not who Jesus shows himself to be in this story and in every story. Maybe the most defining Old Testament statement about the nature of God comes from the mouth of God himself in the book of Exodus when God is speaking on the mountain and telling Israel who he really is. And the first thing that he does is he names his mercy and his loving kindness, his generosity with them. And he says, I will, 
I will be faithful to a thousand generations. And he says, I'll punish sin for three or four. And when I read Exodus 33, when I read that description of God, I hear so loudly that God would punish sin for three or four generations and completely miss the fact that he is comparing his mercy and saying, I'll, I'll be faithful to a thousand generations. I'll completely overwhelm. The voluntary nature of God's generosity is that it is a torrent. It is a flood of mercy. It is an ocean tide that will sweep through. He has more than enough. And when he executes his justice, it is in hopes that he can immediately give his mercy. The picture again and again throughout the Old Testament and all of Scripture is God aching, longing to be generous in His mercy. And oftentimes, I am a Pharisee, I am a spectator who clings to my man-made systems of purification, my own calculations, and I measure myself by my own standards often exempting myself and being harsh with others. And Jesus completely tears up that script. And He just gives. He just gives and gives and gives. He will not be cheap in His generosity with you. He will not be cheap in His love for you. He will not be cheap in His blessing over you. He will not be cheap in His forgiveness towards you. He will not be cheap in His mercy. He will be extravagant. He'll be passionate. He will flood you with thousands of generations of covenant faithfulness. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 13. And it's, uh, if you weren't paying attention, because it's right at the beginning, I understand that. The words of the psalm are quite, quite grim. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? That psalm has to be read out loud by people like us because that is very often how we feel. How long will you forget me? How long will my enemies triumph over me? How long will COVID-19 be in the world? How long will I struggle with sin? How long will it be this way? Have you forgotten me? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist is writing that in faith and in trust, we are confessing it with certainty. The psalmist is looking forward into the gray fog of history 
and saying it in trust because of what God has done in his past, we are saying it with absolute fulfilled certainty because we are looking at Jesus. We will sing because he has dealt with us with extreme generosity. We approach God assuming scarcity that he would parcel out his goodness to us. But the truth of the gospel, the truth of this miracle in John chapter 2 is that Jesus is so generous. He has so much bounty. He is so much better than me. He's so much better than I can imagine. And my greatest sin against him is that I would make him in my image and think that he would stoop down and be like me. But he is not me. He is not your father who failed you. He is not your father who has been cheap in his love towards you. He is not like the one who has betrayed you. He is not like the one who has cut you loose because you're just too much. He is not the one who has been sinned against and said, I cannot and I will not deal with your failure anymore. He is not like anyone. He is like himself. And he nailed his love to the cross and stuck it in the ground of history so that you would never forget. And we are the people who feast on his mercy. That's why we come every time we get together. That's why we come to the table. We are forever the people who feast from the bounty of God's mercy. And if you come to this table and you have had a terrible week, and you are ashamed of your sin, and you have failed God again, and you suspect that He is angry, the table is set every single week so that at the very worst of your weeks, you would see that God's mercy has triumphed over your sin. And, then, and if you have another terrible week next week, and you are tempted to believe that now, finally, this is it. He's run out. Here's the deep sigh of God and the go to your room and I can't deal with you anymore. The table is set again because he's never run out of mercy. And if you have another bad week after that one, and you think that you've extended and expended the totality of God's mercy for you, the table is set again and again and again and again because the Lord will deal bountifully with His people to a thousand generations. That is who He is. And it is the glory of God. It is the glory of God to be generous to people like you and me. If you are here this morning and you have voices inside of you and you are racked with shame and guilt, things that nobody knows about, things that you have hidden ever so well, and you know that God has seen them and you are afraid of Him and you do not think that this morning you can come to Him, the gospel tells you the truth. He's seen it all. And he aches to be generous with you. He aches to have you at his table. And if you have lived your whole life living off of the jars of purification that you have made for yourself, trying to purify and purify and purify yourself, and you are so tired of the stinginess of that table,
come to Jesus this morning. He will turn even the jars of your empty purification into a vessel of his blessing. Even for you, whose heart may be as stone cold as those jars, he can pour his wine into. Come to Jesus this morning. The gospel is being proclaimed to you this morning. The love of God is on display for you this morning. The table is set for you this morning. And he will keep coming after you again and again and again and again because that is who he is and he glories in that strength you are so loved by god and he delights in showering that endless gentle love on you and all of your fears and failures he delights in your delight in him let me pray for us Lord God, we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that you're better than us. We thank you that you're so much better than us. You're so much better than our best examples. You are so much better than our worst examples. Forgive us, God, for putting my face on yours. Forgive us, God for not seeing you as gentle and merciful and kind. Forgive us for thinking that the only thing there is in your hand is judgment. Father, I pray for those who have cowered before you in fear, children of yours that have been afraid to come see their father. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, they would see that the door is swung wide open, that the gates are pinned open for them, that the Father is waiting for them, is eager to welcome them home, has been watching the road, hoping they'd be coming home, no matter the depth of their filth of sin. You're eager, ready for them to be home so you can shower your mercy on them. I pray for those who have never known you, people who are here today, people who are not here today, people who have toiled and toiled and toiled to try to make themselves feel holy, to try to make themselves feel good enough. Pray, God, that you would bring them freedom this morning, that they'd surrender to you. And if you're here this morning and that's you, you realize maybe for the first time, I've never surrendered to Jesus. I've never just laid down and let him fill me up with his love. I want you to pray with me so that you can get the conversation started in your own language for the rest of your life. But just pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I am empty and I need you to fill me up. I have sinned and am so ashamed all the time. Would you come and deliver me in the way that only you can? Jesus hears you, he sees you, and he runs to you and responds to you. For you also, the table is set with God's bountiful mercy. 
forever and ever. Amen.